I didn't ask ahead of time. This is our first Sunday of the month. We normally have our communion. Are we prepared for, to have that? Not yet. Okay, thank you. Um, let me give my summer speech. Summer speech time. First Sunday in June. There are 13 Sundays this summer. June, July, and August. If you have graduation, you might miss a Sunday. If you have vacation, you might miss one or two Sundays. If you have a family reunion on your side, you might miss a Sunday. You have a family reunion on the other side, you might miss a Sunday. You have an outing on a job, you might miss a Sunday, and you might just get tired and oversleep and miss another Sunday. That's almost half the Sundays, folks. We cannot be slack on summer. We don't take time off. We enjoy the summer by serving the Lord. Amen? So I just want to give you my summer speech, encourage you. Summer is here. Don't skip out. You know, some churches have to cancel half their summer programs, not because of COVID, but because of vacation. And all those events that people get involved in, God gave you your life. Worship him. Make Sunday a priority in coming together with the saints and worship him. Now, you might miss a week here or there. Hopefully not. But the point is, you can't just take a time off because you're tired this summer because you might miss half the summer here at Sweet Communion. We want you around. So that's my summer speech. I give it every summer. Prepare you for faithfulness. Faithfulness. Well done, my good and slothful servant. Sometimes servant. Occasional servant. When you feel like it, servant. When I'm in a good mood, servant. When it ain't sun shining and it's raining outside and I ain't got nothing else to do but church, servant. <laughs> well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm preaching to the choir, but the choir need to be reminded too. Amen. All right. Um, you know, we got the pulpit swap. We haven't done that before. I've been asked to do it a couple of times. We haven't done that before. And I got a problem. Donna don't want to come with me. <laughs> I told on her, see? She want to stay at church. You're going to have church either way. So I want you to welcome Pastor Allen and his wife. And I, I trust we'll be welcome to wherever we go. I trust I won't be by myself. But where, <laughs> wherever I am, the Lord is with me. And uh, pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me. So, yeah. <laughs> Praise God for the roof being completed. I thank God for that. I was bragging about um, the support that came in. You remember, that support came in less than a year, and it came over the COVID year. Amen. And you know what? Our funds did not deplenish any in terms of regular giving. In fact, it grew, and, and we've raised almost half of what we needed for the whole uh, roof fund. So praise God for faithfulness. You have been faithful. Praise God for that faithfulness. Amen. And it's good that when it rains outside, we won't have to come in and, and dry out the, uh, the rooms or look for more um, so soggy spots in the ceiling tiles. It's all fixed. Praise God for that. 
All right, let's get to our scripture reading this morning. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 15. I've struggled about what I should do because uh, I'll be preaching today. I'll be preaching here again on Father's Day. And then the two other Sundays, I won't be here with the pastor swap and pulpit swap next Sunday. And then the last Sunday of the month, uh, Brian will be speaking. So um, I didn't want to cut up my message uh, in this last two chapters of Mark, but we're going to have to do something to make that adjustment. So today we'll be looking at Mark 15, 1 through 32, and then we'll catch the other uh, in, in, uh, um, in, in July, actually, because I have a special message for Father's Day we'll be giving. So in July, we'll catch back up with the other half of chapter 15, and then we'll complete it in chapter 16, and then we uh, prepare ourselves for the next ser series. All right, today, Mark 15, um, we're going to read through the whole chapter, even though we'll only be preaching through verse 32. So let's stand then in respect to the reading of God's holy word. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, we'll bring one to you. I want everyone to have access to a Bible this morning. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 32 is our text, but we'll be reading through the entire chapter. <laughs> And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, asked him have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, 
casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription on the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was a son of God. There were also women looking, looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. <clears throat> when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the satyrian, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the satyrian that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of, a rock, of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. May God give us understanding in this portion of scripture that we read and encourage and challenge our hearts in his word. Our choir will come with the song before our message and before the choir comes, we stand together and let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time of worship and this time of prayer. We thank you for your word today. We pray that you would direct our hearts as we look at it that we might see Jesus, that you might use your word to direct how we think and how we respond 
to what the Lord Jesus has done for us. May you get the glory from your word being presented today. Use your word in the way that you design. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Our series in Mark has been marching toward this point from its beginning. Jesus has been doing God's works. He has been performing miracles. He has been preaching about the kingdom. And he has been rejected by those who he talked to. Oh, they like the miracles that he's done. They like to see him do a miracle, but they have ignored the teaching about the kingdom. At the very least, clearly misunderstood it. Even Peter, when Jesus says, I'm going down to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed. He said, wait, 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 no, no, that can't happen. That's not the way it should be. You're the Christ. You're the king. You're to set up your kingdom. But Jesus said, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. You're speaking foolishness. It's not coming from God. This is what God has purposed. You don't understand it yet. You will later on. So Jesus was steadfast in his in his movement toward Jerusalem, he had told his disciples several times, three times we see here, very clearly that he was going down to Jerusalem. He was going to be arrested. He was going to be beaten, mocked, and killed, and he was going to rise again. They only heard a part of that. But this was his purpose, and he was set for it. In chapter 14, we see his arrest and the beginning of his trial. We understand by putting the Gospels together that it was probably at least six parts of his trial by several different groups. He was tried by Anas, who was the father-in-law to the high priest, Caiaphas. He was tried by Caiaphas, and I think by one of them again, he was tried um, by the whole council, the Sanhedrin council. He was sought, tried by uh, a pilot again, more than once. And so I want to look at a couple aspects of this trial, but what we're looking at is a mockery of a trial and a mockery of a king. And that's the way that Mark presents it so that we might understand what's happening to Jesus and that we might appreciate what he's done for us. 
Now, I can start just by saying when we look at this chapter and we look at the Gospels and we look at the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, it's a very hard passage for me to preach. One reason is because it's so full of the, the selfless act of what Jesus has done for us. And it's so powerful in that message. It, it's, it's, it's just hard to contain. It, it's so emotional as well. It's like if you watch uh, uh, anything or you watch a movie or a play, when you, 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 there, there's a difficult time in there that may be uncomfortable to look at, but you can't turn away. You can't take a break, even though it's, it's hard on your emotions. But I, I would have you to know, as we look at the, the, the death, the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, the Bible presents the truths to us in a way that we would know what has happened and be clear about what has happened, and enough detail to know the agonizing uh, uh, ordeal that this was, both physically and spiritually. But we're not giving all the detail because God wants us to know what Jesus did, but he doesn't want us serving or trusting Jesus out of pity or even out of uh, being upset at the mockery or the injustice that was done in our society today. We have movements that make much use of the display, the video, so that their message can drive at hearts with anger, emotion, and pity. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible presents the facts so that believers might know what happens, and it's the Holy Spirit that drives those points to, to, to our hearts that we realize the depth and the, 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 what's really happening as we read. God doesn't want you to serve him out of feeling sorry for what Jesus did on the cross, but he wants you to serve him knowing what Jesus did for you and that it was very real. And the pain and the suffering that he experienced, he experienced as a part of his plan. And so I call this chapter the, great, the greatest love story. The greatest love story. I call it that because it shocks us that we would look at the death of Jesus as a love story, but that's exactly what it is. I call it that too because we look at it and it's not our idea of a love story. It's not a romantic love of a man who falls in love with a woman and does all he can do to win her heart and enjoys the chase and enjoys the end and enjoys the journey. This love story has a very different picture, but it is indeed the love story of what Jesus has done to win over those that are his. Let's take a look at it. It indeed was a trial that was a mockery. 
to justice because, first of all, it violated even Roman and Jewish law. It was a trial at night that they took Jesus. We see that in the last part of chapter 14. Um, in chapter 15, verse 1, it says this, As soon as it was morning, that means something had been going on all night. If you look back at chapter 14, you realize that Jesus warns Peter that, hey, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. He says, this night, he says, if you can look at with me in, in verse 30, chapter 14, verse 30, it says this. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So all this happened at night. They arrested Jesus. They had a trial the same night. And they set the penalty, a death penalty, the same night and executed it the next day. That's an illegal process. We get, most, 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 we get much of our culture and our law system from the Roman system and, and, and from the Judeo-Christian uh, theme that, that is set in the Old Testament and New Testament. And both those, it is illegal to do a trial at night. You can imagine why. <laughs> good things don't usually happen at night. I'm told it's nothing good you can expect being somewhere at 3 o'clock in the morning. And this kind of thing is happening. It's the, it's the impression that it's underhanded, and indeed it is. It's not brought out in the light. It's head and it's swept under in the dark, and indeed it, it is. You can see that it's night when Jesus, after he had warned Peter that he would, in fact, deny him, he goes to the place of prayer in Gethsemane, and he prays. And what does he caution the disciples? Stay awake. Stay awake, because it's getting late. Stay awake, guys. That's what he says. It's at night. And it tells us there in chapter 14, it says uh, uh, immediately after this, look at verse 43. This is after he, he tells them to stay awake. Can't you, you know, uh, can't you uh, pray with me or can't you be with me for, for just a, a moment or a time of prayer? Then he says, verse 43, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came. And that's when he was arrested. So this is at night. Verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest. I'm in chapter 14 of verse 53. And so we see the trial beginning there. Another mockery that is shown is that the, the charges were made, but they weren't supported by the evidence. Chapter 14, verse 55, it says this. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They didn't find any evidence. Also, we see that the verdict had been announced even before the charges came. The verdict was going to be the death penalty. They were just trying to find some charges. It had been determined already that, of course, is a great 
injustice. Verse 56, for, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Not only was it false, it didn't even make sense. It didn't stand up to just simple reason. And we see an example of that when they claimed that Jesus had claimed he would destroy the temple in three days, build it up. They repeated that, but they had it wrong. That's not what Jesus said. In verse 64, we see, as I mentioned before, the verdict and the penalty given at the same trial. Now, you know, in our jurisdiction, in, in, our, in our system, we don't do that. After the trial, there is a verdict of guilty or non guilty. After that verdict, there is a time set for the sentencing. The sentencing is always after the verdict. Why? There needs to be some time to reason, to think, and to look at precedents and, and to see what is just now. now that, and and for, in other words, for, for, for heads to cool off. Okay, you're guilty. Then now let's assess what the sentence should be. But here, in the same day, in the same night, or in the same consecutive day, or night and day, the verdict was given, the penalty was given at the same time. Verse 64, we see that. It says, you've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Just like that. Also, Jesus had no defense attorney. No one to represent him. No one to stand on his behalf and to say, let's examine the evidence given to us. That's a violation. We can see that the evidence did not stand up by a couple of ways. In chapter 15, our text this morning, Jesus stands before Pilate in verse 9 and 10. It's, this is Pilate speaking to the crowd. He answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Pilate knew they didn't have any substantial evidence. If you go over, to, I'm going to direct your attention to John chapter 18, verse 38. We can see Pilate's actions. In John chapter 18, verse 38, Pilate is speaking with Jesus. It says, Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. This is Pilate's own words. I find no guilt in him. Now, he, he, he was talking with Jesus trying to find out what's all this uproar about? What's going on? These charges are against you. But after he listened to Jesus, he examined the evidence. He went out to the crowd and said, hey, I, I'm sorry. Y'all don't have anything. He didn't just say that once. In chapter 19, verse 4. It says this, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Again, same chapter, verse 6. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves 
and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Three times he says, I find no guilt in him. Now you wonder why does he say, take him out and crucify him, if he found no fault or no guilt in him. But the truth is, he saw that there was no evidence for him to be crucified. In John, excuse me, in Mark chapter 15, the writer of Mark helps us to see the contrast that exists at Jesus' crucifixion. One contrast is Barabbas. He points out that Barabbas, they had a practice of each year releasing somebody at the feast, releasing a criminal. Now, I don't know why they did that, and I don't know why we think we should do that today. And obviously, Pilate, you know, it wasn't his favorite thing to do, but he went along with it. And so he's going to use this for political gain or favor, I suppose. And so he says to them, you can see that uh, um, verse 6. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, I want you to just look at how it describes Barabbas. Among the rebels in prison, doesn't just say inmates. It's like the worst of the worst. Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, they went against the government, trying to topple the government, and they killed people. And that's what they were in jail for. There was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Pilate is, is thinking, hey, this is my way out. I already said I find no fault in him. So I have a chance for me to release him by our practice. Do you want me to release him? Now what happens? It says, for he, verse 10, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had stirred up the crowd, to, excuse me, that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. I, I, I got to... Imagine how that went down. Can you? They got the whole crowd to agree on a murderer to be released, and they gave his name. It's not like, hey, just release one of them. No. Hey, tell them to release Barabbas. Tell them to release Barabbas. Tell them to release Barabbas. And you know, they got the whole crowd all worked up, and this is the word that came to Pilate. Imagine that. Instead of releasing Jesus, the only sinless one who never sinned, there's no one on earth who ever lived that meets that standard, they would ask for not just a prisoner, but a murderer to be released. Now, let me tell you, that's a picture of me and you. That's a picture of me and you. Instead of me facing the judgment 
I am set free because Jesus takes my penalty. Now, that doesn't come automatically. It's not just to anybody and everybody. It comes to those who trust in Jesus. But that's a picture of the great irony of God's judgment is placed on Jesus and those who truly are guilty, me and you, are released and set free. Barabbas is a picture of the incredible irony, contradiction, paradox of the cross. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be found the righteousness of God in him. God the Father put on the sin of all of his, all of his people's sin, he put it on Jesus, the righteous one, so that we will be set free. That action, that transaction is a picture of what happens to me and you. You may think, really? A murderer? The worst of the worst. Our sin condemned us, and we sat under God's penalty, and Jesus pays the price for us. Now, I'm not telling you that Barabbas trusted in Christ or that he was saved. We're not giving any information on that. What I'm telling you, Barabbas is a picture like me and you who deserve God's judgment, but Jesus is exchanged for Barabbas. Now, they did it wickedly. God did it willingly. Jesus did it willingly. What a mighty picture in Barabbas. Now, there's some other pictures here in this chapter that I want to talk about. Next picture is the battalion of soldiers in verses 16 through 20. It says in verse 16, the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. So this is going to happen in behind the scenes. Inside, it says the governor's palace. The whole battalion, it says, is gathered there. There's a contrast to this group of men. In verse 40, there's a group of women. There were also women looking on from a distance, among who were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph and Salmon. Now, you'll notice that that's Mary, Jesus' mother. It says in verse 41, and when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. That was the practice of these women as opposed to the practice of this battalion of soldiers. Look what they did. In verse 17, they clothed him in a purple cloak. A purple cloak. The color is to represent royalty because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And so they put a mock king's robe on him. I'm, I'm told that it was mock uh, the, 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 the 
ridicule of it is that it hardly covered anything of his body. You see, in royalty, it's the color and it's the fullness, it's the dress that tells you, so to, so to speak, who's who. Well, they identified him as a king, but only to mock him. It says, twisting together a crown. Here's a king, and he has a crown, but this is a crown of thorns. And you, can, you and I can only imagine what happens when you press that on his head. And they begin to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed. That's just a big stick. Beat him across the head as they saluted him. Hail, king of the Jews. Look what else they did. It says, spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. They bowed down before him in mockery as if he was a king with his little cute purple robe on and a crown on his head. And they beat him with clubs. They spit on him. And they kneeled down in mockery to honor him. Verse 20, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him led him out to crucify him. We see such a contrast in that and the women who ministered to Jesus regularly, who cared for him, who provided probably for he and his disciples clothing, food, lodging, whatever was needed as they did the job that God had given them to do. We see a great contrast between those two groups. There's several other groups that give us contrast in this chapter. In verse 21, it says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Serene, who was coming in from the country. So we see him, but look at verse 29, it says this, And those who passed by derided him. I'm caught by the words, pass by, pass by. There were two couple different groups uh, of, of people who passed by. Look at verse 35. And some of the bystanders there. In verse 40, you also see women looking on from a distance. So you have several groups of passerbys or bystanders who are looking on this. Now, I kind of wonder, how long can you look at a man being tortured? It says the crucifixion started at the third hour, went on to the ninth hour. It says in verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. But it started even before then. And how long could you sit there and just watch what happened to Jesus? We see the cruelty and the mockery of what was going on while the women were watching for a distance just out of agony of what was happening to him. 
But you see a couple different groups. There's one in verse 21. They compelled a, one, a man passing by, Simon of Serene. And uh, you can kind of imagine what goes on there. He was a visitor to Jerusalem at that time. And they called him and they said, hey, you got to help him carry his cross. It tells you a couple things. One is that Jesus was too weak to carry a huge cross. The cross that he was going to be mounted on for his crucifixion had to be strong enough to, to carry the weight of his body. And so it was quite large and quite heavy. And, and so after he had been beaten, if you look through chapter 14 and 15, you realize that we just read the verse in verse 19 and 20 where, where he, 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 they, they beat him there. But if you look at the other Gospels, you realize that Pilate, when, when he had tried him and examined him and found nothing wrong with him, it said he commanded him to be scorched. You remember that verse is in verse 15. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, that, that, that's just like a, a quick glimpse, and it might not get our notice, but we need to take some time out and talk about the word scourged. What does that mean? What, what takes place there? The scourge was a process that they used during crucifixion was to be beaten with a whip. It was a whip that had tied to its ends, to its strands, bone and, 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 and metal so that it would rip the flesh off. Pilate commanded this even though Jesus was innocent and he knew it. He thought he would satisfy the crowd by releasing Barabbas and presenting Jesus who had already received this extreme punishment. And with all this, he had lost so much blood and could barely walk. And so somebody had to be commanded to help him bear his cross. But think about that. You're helping him take this cross to where he would be beaten and killed and die there. It says this man is identified as Simon of Serene. I'm part of Africa. can only guess the skin color of this individual. But it's not something he did willingly. He was commanded to do. And so it seems like they would pick on or choose someone out of the crowd that they could do to, to do this job. I'm reminded, I wonder why that name comes up. And I can only uh, use a bit of my imagination as I look through uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 13. The name Rufus comes up. And it doesn't make a connection to both of them, but you will wonder why both of those names are listed here. Here it says that uh, Simon of Serene. He's mentioned as the father of Alexander and Rufus. I think this is, well, let me just say this. It's possible that Alexander and Rufus are mentioned here because they're well known to the readers. Just like that kind of mystery verse we looked at in chapter 14 of the, the man who was following Jesus and, and they stripped him of his, of his robe and he ran away naked. Wonder why he was mentioned. We can only imagine that that was somebody common to the readers as well, maybe even the writer himself. 
The name Rufus is mentioned in Romans chapter 16, and it could lead us to think that these were believers now. Certainly that Rufus in Romans 16 is a believer, he and his mother, and they could be tied back to this Simon as the children of Simon, and maybe that's why their particular names are listed. It's interesting if that be the case, isn't it? Well, this person was chosen not because of his affiliation, perhaps, but just he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But he's a passerby. Other passers-by ridiculed Jesus, and we see that in those verses 29 and 30. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. It's interesting how evil people, when they think you're defeated, now want to laugh at you. I don't think any of them were laughing when Jesus calmed the sea. I don't think any of them were laughing when Jesus displayed his power, even at his arrest, and a whole battalion of guards fell down flat. And I don't think any of them were laughing when Jesus said to, said to the chief priest, or excuse me, to the, to the high priest, yes, I am. <laughs> I am the Christ, and you will see the Son of Man coming in power with his angels. And certainly they won't be laughing when that time comes. So there's a contrast of individuals here at the cross of Jesus. We see some who stand by and we see the different ones. We see robbers in verse 27 and verse 32. With him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Then in verse 32, it says, what the scribes mocked Jesus, said, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Those robbers reviled him. It tells us in another gospel, both of them started out reviling Christ, mocking him, even as they suffer on the cross for their own penalties. But the Bible also talk, tells us that one of them heart was changed even in that moment and he trusted Jesus what a contrast between individuals it's interesting the it says here Verse 31, the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. You can sense the ridicule and the mocking in that. How great are you now, Jesus? And they use the title, the Christ, the King of Israel. Don't miss that point. They, put, they present to him the name and the title of who he actually is, but they do it in a mocking way. 
that I said, this is the greatest love story. And there's a reason for that. Is that Jesus endured what he did because he knew he was to pay the price for my sin and for your sin. We see of those at the cross, we see the different ones, we see how they mock, we see how some are looking from, from a distance and just in sorrow and grief over what's going on. His own mother is looking at what has happened. Jesus, and the Word of God doesn't present this so that we might be filled with emotion of pity, but that we might know and understand what our Lord has done for us. As we take communion today, we remember what Christ has done. His picture being mocked by those who falsely accused him and being put to death, being ridiculed. It's always easy to, to ridicule somebody when they're down. I remember so many times in, in my youth, either being in a confrontation or seeing people in a confrontation, you know, it's like the fight was supposed to start and then somebody comes in and breaks them up, right? And once they're broken up and held back, then all the talk starts. Then all the talk really starts. It's amazing how bold they get then when they're being restrained. I was riding down the street just yesterday. No, it was Friday, actually, riding down the street, right on 27th Street, just a couple blocks from my house. And there in the middle of the street were two police officers who had detained a man. And they, they had to do it right in the middle of the street. Now, I'm coming up, and I don't know all that happened, but all I see there is the two of them on the ground trying to control this man. And a woman comes from the other side of the street to stomp on the man that they're holding. I'm like, really? The police are so involved with holding this man down that all you can see is her trying to stomp on him. She's not stomping on the police. She's trying to get the man. So obviously they had some kind of conflict. And I'm thinking, yeah, before the police came, were you doing that? It's always easy to ridicule somebody when they're restrained from their power. And this is how Jesus was treated. Yeah, you're the Christ. You're the deliverer. Save yourself now. These will have to look at Jesus. See, the Bible presents Jesus in different Ways And here we see him as the one who loved us so much that he went through the penalty of the cross and suffered. Revelation says, behold, he comes. He is coming. He himself, when he answered the high priest and says, yes, you can see that in chapter 14. Verse 62, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. We thank Jesus for his love 
that put him to the cross. We thank him for his power to know that he's going to return. And we save him, I mean, we serve him knowing that he saved us with his love. He's going to redeem us with his power. And we look forward to that. As we take communion tonight, we look at what his blood shed meant for us. And he says, remember me until I come. We anticipate his coming and we live in the light of those two. We live in the light of the great payment that was made. Oh, he loved us so much that he gave his, he gave his life on the cross for us. And he is so powerful that he's going to keep his promise in coming. I'm going to ask our leaders if they will come at this time and prepare for communion tonight, today. And I ask that you prepare your heart in thankfulness, in gratitude for the love that Christ has shown. And not just in a show as we practice today, but as you leave this place, that you would worship God by serving him in all that you do in your life. This week, you go through this week that you might serve Christ, remembering what he has done for you. That not just be a moment here, but to be a lifetime of service. So let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for what Christ has done for us. We thank you, Lord, that he's coming again and that he will receive us. He will receive us to himself. We thank you for his kingdom and what he's done to secure us in that kingdom. And we will pray, Father, that our hearts would reflect worship, true worship to you by a life of commit, committedness and service to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. So what we have today represents Jesus' blood, and that blood means death, that he suffered and he died for us. We remember Christ as we take this together. The Bible warns us to, to examine ourselves before we worship in any way, and especially this way. It warns us that there were believers who were sick because of God's judgment on how they were callous to proper worship and so we we take that to heart that we we need to um, make sure that our hearts are right and in tune with God make sure that we um, have trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior make sure that we are walking in obedience to him and we desire to continue to walk in obedience so let's examine our hearts right now and we're going to have a moment of silent prayer and ask Brian to pray for us and prepare that God will prepare us for communion worship today. Let's bow our heads in silent prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for calling us to be your children, Lord, for doing so much for us, Lord. And so, Lord, we take this time, Lord, to call to mind, Lord, our own behavior and how we stand up to the standard that your son has set for us. And so, Lord, we pray, Lord, as we examine ourselves, Lord, that you would open our eyes, Lord, so that we would see 
our ways and repent and be humble before you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would just, if there is something that we have against a brother or sister, Lord, in this time, your spirit bring that person to our minds so that we know that we can, that we should solve that problem before we take communion. And Lord, if there's also, Lord, if you would just bring to mind, Lord, and create in us a desire to take part in your communion because we are celebrating all that you have done for us, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, that in every soul that you would build in us a strong desire to celebrate what you've done for us. Yes. And I pray, Lord, that if there is any in here, Lord, who sinned, Lord, that you would forgive him, yes. that you would forgive her, Lord, that we would take part in this communion, Lord, with pure hearts, Lord, um, in our innocence serving you, Lord, knowing that because of all you've done for us, we can be forgiven. And, Lord, we just think about the sermon, Lord, of all you went through, Lord, and the multiple beatings that you suffered. But we realize that it was necessary, and that's how bad our sin was, mm -hmm. that all that was necessary for it. It wasn't something that could be taken care of in a simple, quick death. Mm -hmm. And so we thank you, Lord, for paying that price for us. And so help us now to walk in the newness of life that you've given us. Yes. In your name we pray. Amen. You're familiar with our process. We will um, release, starting at the back, from the outside rows. If you come and take the cup, just one cup contains the, the juice and the wafer. And go back to your seat. After everyone has received, we'll give further instructions. So let us um, stand. Let's all stand. And at the back, leaders, would you direct our teams? Parents, guide your children. This is not a treat. This is worship. Restrict it to those who know that they are believers, those who are walking in obedience to the Lord. You make that judgment for yourself. But God knows. After you receive the cup, if you would take your seat and we'll give further instruction that we might take it together. Aren't you thankful to the Lord today? Aren't you willing to reflect on what he has done? Oh, it's a hard thing. The cross was not a pleasant sight. But when we think about his love, his love for his people, that he would go through what he went through for our sake. In the prayer in Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But he said, nevertheless, your will be done. He was willing to go through. He knew what he would face, but he was willing to go through that. Aren't you thankful for that? We rejoice. It's amazing that the cross is now an emblem 
of our faith in Christ. It's an empty cross because he's already paid for our sin. What would be a cruel and blood-filled scene is now the symbol of our redemption because there Jesus paid for our sin. So it's not with sadness that we look on the cross. We see it for all it is. It's with joy that we are thankful that our Savior was willing to pay for our sin in the only way that was possible, and that was on the cross. I guess if you and me had designed a system, it wouldn't require that, but we're not God. God required it and then fulfilled it in his own son. Oh, how he loves you and me. We pass that cup then to our leadership team as well. So we can prepare. Has everyone received that wishes to have today? All right, let's go ahead and, and uh, open up that first layer first. I did it right this time. That easy one. The Bible tells us that Jesus, the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, I want you to take this and eat it. This represents my body that will be given for you. His body provided salvation for us in his death on the cross. Remember Christ then as we eat together. You can open up the cup now. He says, the cup that he had represented his blood. It didn't actually become his blood, but it did represent that he would shed his blood for his people. He did that at the celebration of the Passover supper. Passover represented Jesus. And Jesus instituted this for us to reflect and to think back, not only on what his death, not only on his death and his, his blood, but that fact that he will come back and receive his own. He wanted us to remember, he wanted us to reflect, he wanted us to think and prepare ourselves for his coming. He wanted us to find hope in the fact that he has not left us here by ourselves. He sent the Holy Spirit with us. And the Holy Spirit is preparing us for Christ's coming. May we be faithful until he comes. Let's drink together. Father, we are thankful for the gift of your son. It seems like a horrible picture, except that that picture is what was required to purchase my salvation. I just say thank you, Lord, that you loved me. Thank you that your son loved me and showed his love by his crucifixion 
and all the goriness of it is because he loved us and that was necessary to pay for my sin. Thank you for those here today that love you because you loved us and that say our worship and our thanks to you. Thank you, Jesus, for the price that you paid for our sin. As we walk and leave this place, may we forever worship you. May we continually worship you in all that we do and all that we say. And we glorify you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody says, amen. You are dismissed.